Welcome to the show, everyone. We have a very special guest for you today. He is the first and only Shooto heavyweight champion, BJJ black belt, and a legendary veteran and MMA fighter. Welcome to the show, Yamato Damashi himself, Ensign Inoue. Hello, sir. What's up, man? How's it? Good, good. Yeah, recently just had your brother Egan on the show. Got the good catch up with oh, him. Right. Getting his foil slipping on, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Still not going to try that yet, though, right? No. <laughs> not for me. So you have an amazing career, but you're leading off with that. Yamato Damashi. Can you kind of explain for people that may not know what that means and actually how deep in thought the meaning behind that is and how you got that nickname? Actually, Yamato was the way they called Japan long ago. The literal meaning is Japanese spirit. But what it's translated to, because in those days, the Edo era, they were all samurai running. When you're talking about the Japanese spirit in that day, you're talking about the samurai spirit. And it goes into Yamato Damashi. Damashi, Tamashi is the meaning for spirit in Japanese. So oh. Yamato Damashi would mean Japanese spirit or what we interpret it as a samurai spirit. And it's, it's a real neat thing because when you think of the samurai, you think of someone that's strong, endures pain, not afraid to go into battle, not afraid to die. But it actually accomplishes a lot more than that. What includes the traits that are included in Yamato Damashi are not just courage and bravery. It's also compassion integrity honor so when i was introduced to that word i think the reporter who gave it to me was actually looking at more of my fighting style and he said my interviews i guess the way i talked and the things i said uh, related to his belief of a samurai wow that's amazing and yeah you could back it up any file footage of you at all man it was all left out in ring or cage let's kind of go back you have a origin story wise growing up you had an interesting concept even getting into martial arts. You were bullied quite a bit when you were younger. And I believe your dad had an interesting way of and stern approach about that. Can you go into that and how your foundation? Yeah, well, um, more than bullied, I think we were, as the Japanese Americans, we were smaller than the Hawaiians and the Samoans and the local people in Hawaii. So, you know, back in that day, it was believed that the bigger you are, the stronger you are. So there's nothing like Reishi Jiu-Jitsu. There was no technique involved. It was about someone who was bigger was going to be stronger. Hmm. So with that in mind, in school, in elementary school, and in intermediate school, the bigger kids would come and take the lunch money from the smaller kids. And because I was an Asian-American, as you know, Asians aren't very big guys. So we're like one of the smaller people in Hawaii or in, in the school that I was in. And the Hawaiians and the Samoans would um, frequently take the money from the Asian kids. So, you know, that happened around me. Uh, my brother Egan went to that same school. So I heard about it from him. And basically I was really dreading going to that school. I was in Manoa Elementary, which is a small elementary school in the town. So Manoa is a real good district because there's a lot of Asian Americans and there's no trouble like that. But when you go into intermediate school, it merges to the next two valleys and which Immersed to Papakale and Poa Valley was also the valleys that are required to go to that same intermediate school. Gotcha. So the Asian kids from Manoa was merged with all the Hawaiians and the Samoans. And, you know, we dreaded that. So when I... Big kids. Yeah. So I was already anticipating, you know, getting my lunch taken, my lunch money taken and having to pay for some order, some bigger kids juice and stuff. So I really didn't look forward to it. And... I don't know when Egan saw it happen or anything like that happen, but apparently Egan went and told my dad that I didn't stand up for myself against the older kid. And I remember my dad telling me, you know, my dad was all about 
standing up for yourself. Don't let people take advantage of you. And he instilled in me that thought that I remember him telling me that if you're going to turn away a fight next time, you come home and fight me instead. <laughs> hey, I bet I know which one you chose. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, you know, back then to your dad is like, he's the guy who teaches you everything. He's someone that you look up to and thinking of fist fighting your dad is like <laughs> trying to fight God, you know? So <laughs> for me, it's like, Anybody, instead of fighting my dad, is a better fight for me to have a chance to survive. So, wow. of course, you know, the next time that happened, I stood up to the kid. I remember his name, Billy Kekka. He used to do that a lot. So it was kind of like almost a given that we we're going to give him his money. I remember we was waiting for the bell to ring so we could run for the bus. Wow. And he came walking around and I said, oh, shit, he's coming around. And he came around and he said, hey, Japanese boy, give me money for it. I want to buy juice. So I just told him, I'm not giving you money for my juice. Buy your own juice. And then it started up a whole, uh, take off his shirt, jump around, start raising his voice. And I I think at that time, I was pretty much thinking that I'm going to get my ass kicked. But I'm yeah. going to stand up against this kid. Um, of course, don't want to fight dad at home. So yeah. I'd rather fight this kid here. Yeah. And that started up a whole wave where I got a reputation of standing up for myself. Wow. And... They stopped hijacking me. They stopped trying to ask for money. Instead, I don't know if it was good or bad because they stopped taking my money, but then they started targeting me. Every time I walked through the halls, they would block the walkway or they started to taunt me and, and call me names when I walked by. So I remember those names specifically. I have no grudge against them. I've already forgiven them. And yeah. I would love to meet them and just shake their hand and, you know, thank them for making me so tough. Yeah. I remember Billy Keka. One, one guy was Billy, one guy was Puna, and one guy was Avis. Those three guys helped me and led me in the direction to stand up for myself. That's unbelievable. And obviously, I mean, that's like the founding stages of it, all the way to your nickname, so to speak, when you go to the MMA world as an adult. And also, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of the kids these days, it's pretty watered down. Uh, your dad having the insight to really raise you at a young age, stand up for yourself. Well, you know, I wouldn't want to be any other person that I am today. Yeah. So... As much as I need to thank my dad for guiding me in the right way, I need to thank Billy, Avis, and Puna for being there and for igniting that situation. Because if it wasn't for that situation, I would have I would have never ran across that. I would never have to stand up for myself. And it would have never ignited that Yamato Damashi flame that 30 years later, I actually was able to display in the ring. That's unbelievable. Wow. I mean, I feel like I'm watching the beginning stories of like Karate Kid or something. <laughs> That's actually unbelievable. And yeah, kind of led you into doing Taekwondo, Apkido, and at, I believe it was like, like 1998, you started getting into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. What kind of made you want to go towards specifically Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and when did you kind of fall in love with it, so to speak? Well, I was all about my idea of training martial arts was to protect myself in the streets. It wasn't mm -hmm. to fight in the ring. It wasn't to see how tough I am. It was all about being able to defend myself in the streets. So I tried all the different martial arts because I was in search for the best martial art. Mm. I even tried Haikido, Taekwondo, Hapkido. Had a three days in karate. You know, I did a lot of different martial arts, Muay Thai, Wing Chun. And as everyone knows today, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. At the time, it was Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Now it's called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Mm -hmm. It's so practical. And oh, yeah. if you want to learn to defend yourself on the street, that's the art you'd learn. I mean, if you're going to learn any, if, if people ask me, what should my, have my son learn? 
And my first thing is either wrestling or jujitsu. Yeah. And they ask, well, what about the striking? Isn't striking something important? I say, yeah, striking is super important. But you can nullify striking with wrestling or jujitsu, but you cannot nullify jujitsu or wrestling with striking. Interesting point. Unless wow. you get that lucky punch, <laughs> yeah. you're going to have to deal with someone on the ground. That's a fantastic point. And I remember there's another very famous or infamous thing that you kind of were involved with was demoting yourself the purple belt. And But the reasoning behind it as a black belt now, I totally get it. And you kind of briefly going to that. And also John Lewis, who gave you your black belt, he had a different viewpoint on black belt humility. Yeah. Well, demoting myself wasn't anything but a personal journey. After being out of the game for so long, I felt like my skills were not up to par of calling myself a proper black belt. And I thought for myself, I just wasn't doing the belt justice by wearing it and not being able to, you know, I couldn't pass my purple belts guards. They were passing my guard, like life cutting to butter. And for me, I, I had the wrong idea. I just thought that I can't live up to a black belt technique. I'm, of course, my conditioning was bad. My flexibility, especially. My biggest thing was my flexibility mm. and my movement. You know, especially, as you know, playing guard, flexibility has a lot to do to keep a good guard. And I lost a lot of my flexibility. So what I remember is moving my legs the way I could move it and to recover guard, to stop the, you know, cross over your leg to stop the pass, recover the underneath leg and suck it out and get your guard back. And I couldn't cross that leg over and didn't have the same range of motion. So Man. a lot of the movements, I felt like I wasn't moving like a black belt. And I was only comparing it because I couldn't pass purple belts guards. Hmm. I wasn't getting submitted, but I was. if it was a point system, I was losing every single time. Yeah, yeah so yeah. that was my whole idea. I kind of classified it as a metaphor of being a cell phone expert. And saying the year 2000, we were put in jail. And I was put in jail for 20 years. And at the time I went in, there was only flip phones. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there was no such thing as going to the internet with your phone. There was no such thing as, you know, taking pictures. And, you know, pictures were really bad. And you come out 20 years later, calling yourself a cell phone expert. And they say, okay, here, here's an iPhone. Check it out. <laughs> I wouldn't know the first thing about turning it on. I wouldn't know how to even get to the internet. You know, so... I just felt that with that metaphor comparing jiu-jitsu, I just felt like I can't call myself a black belt. And I personally felt that I didn't want to train under a camouflage of being a black belt. And I hid the embarrassment and the humility that I lacked. I hid it with the fact that I'm saying that I'm not doing justice to a black belt by wearing the black belt and not being able to pass the purple belt's guard. And right. that's the way I stood. And, you know, for me, my whole thing is, I guess I underestimated how much impact my words would be, especially in the jiu-jitsu world. Mm, and I, I just felt, you know, Facebook was something that, you know, I do Facebook and Instagram and all these, even today, I do the, all the social media stuff, not to promote myself, but I feel like I've learned so much in my career and my adventures in my life that if my experiences can help someone yeah. or even save a life, Oh, yeah. And that's the only reason why I put all those things out. And I just felt that this journey, feeling I got to demote myself to a purple belt, whether it was the right move or not at the time, I felt, man, I should document this because there's probably a lot of people that are feeling oh. the same way. And, you know, seeing me attack this situation, whether I did it right or wrong, if someone can 
experience it with me and notice the mistakes I make or see what I do right. If they're in that situation, I felt that. So I thought, okay, I'll put it on Facebook. I'll document this. Took a picture of me and my purple belt. Uh, of course, my students that I promoted to black was like, no, no, don't wear a purple belt. No, we don't want, we don't want to wrestle you as a purple belt. I'm like, you know, don't worry about it. So I told them that when you see me back to the level of a brown, tell me and I'll put my brown. Wow. Not like I need to be promoted. I never was demoting. I'm saying I'm not no, no longer a John Lewis black belt. I was just saying that I'm no longer at the level of a black belt. And a personal journey, I want to wear a purple until I get to a brown and wear a brown until I feel like I'm black again. And wow. I just documented, put up my purple boat, had my, my girlfriend take a picture of me sitting in my purple boat. And I just said, okay, this is what's happening today. And oh my God. Yeah. The next day I got blown up with people who wanted podcasts. I had I got blown up with people propping me for my humility. And I got like, some people that were criticizing me telling me i'm an attention whore i'm just trying to get attention i'm trying to get relevant and as you if you know me i i could give a shit about relevance i would rather walk in an arena where nobody knows me than have to walk in the arena and watch what i put in my mouth see what i whether i laugh when someone gets hurt in a fight or you know yeah i don't want to be looked like that you know when i go to the arenas with my students sudario He's a current name. He gets approached by fans a lot. And what I yeah. do is I step aside. Some of them will recognize me and ask for autograph too. But I don't know. I guess I feel I had my moment. And I think it's his moment. And yeah, I like to just step aside. So I'm not that type of person that likes that limelight and wants to have attention and have my name back in the media. I, I, I huh. hated my name being the media. Yeah, everything then that blows up. Is, everything yeah. you do is huge. You, you get... You get caught going into a hotel with a girl and you're just a nobody. Who, nobody cares. Yeah. Right. But if you're a big name, if you're like a Tom Cruise and you're, you're married and you go into a hotel with a girl, that's all over the fucking newspapers and the yeah. tabloids, you know? Yeah, yeah people eat that but shit who up. Who wants to be that popular, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't go anywhere. And, yeah, and then John Lewis, you talked with him about it and he had a really good mindset. He helped you out there, right? Well, yeah. So, well, for me, I didn't want to disrespect anyone who's helped me on my journey. So John was a guy that I really respect a lot. He's taught me a lot. I still look up to him a lot as a mentor and a teacher. And I felt like I had to run it across John. It was funny because the first reaction I got from John, because he respected me so much, was that, uh, hey, um, it's your decision. And whatever you decide you want to do, I support. I'm like, oh, cool. I got John's okay. And I was like full on board with it. And... As we were corresponding back and forth, he did say something that was really uh, caught me off guard was he said that I don't give out many black belts and you're one of my proudest black belts. Wow. I'm like, oh, I'm always your black belt, man. You know? Yeah. And he said that, yeah, you know, I I may not agree with what you're doing, but if it's, it's your journey and if that's what you want to do, I support it. I'm like, why wouldn't you agree, John? And hmm. that's where it brought it out. And he, I like John because... He's not just real, and he, he's a type of guy like me that doesn't like to stand in the spotlight either. You know, he just, he said words that really hit me hard, and he said that, Ensign, to be honest with you, I think the reason why you're having a hard time wearing a black belt is because your lack of humility as a black belt. I'm like, wait, everyone's saying how humble, how much humility I'm showing, and I'm like, this, my, one of the guys I really look up to, he's telling me you got lack of humility as a black belt. I'm like, wow. Whoa, fuck. What? 
<laughs> I was like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. He said, and said, don't look at a Brazilian black belt as a cell phone expert. I see, I see it more as a doctorate in the school. You know, you get a doctor degree. And he said that if I'm a doctor and I'm practicing my medicine and I take a hiatus and I come back and there's new medicine, there's new technique. Do I go back and throw my doctors away and go back into get my bachelor's degree, go back into med school? He said, no, I studied the updated techniques and updated medicine as a doctor. And Man. when he told me that, I was saying, holy shit, yeah. that is so true. That's so true and profound. Wow. Man. And he said, why you're having a problem wearing your black belt when you're wrestling with a purple belt is because you lack the humility of not being able to pass a purple belt guard. You're being outpointed by a purple belt when you're wearing a black. And it was really weird when he, as soon as he said that, I realized it was true because the couple of days that I sparred my purple belt, I had no problem not being able to pass my purple belt guard because I'm a purple belt too. Yeah. And I felt, wow. I felt, I mean, I felt like, yeah, I, I want to go roll everywhere. No, I don't care. I, I'll roll because I'm a purple belt now. And I was, as a black belt, I felt like I had some image or some uh, status huh. to keep up. I'm in Sinoe, the black belt that got his black belt in 1998, you know. So it was really weird when he said that. I was like, yeah, holy crap. I did wow. lack humility as a black belt. So I told John, shit, I just put it over social media all over. What I'm going to say now, he goes, you know what? He said, don't even worry about what people think. It's your own journey. And if you decide to put a black belt back on, put it back on. And yeah. I ha actually had my purple belt on for two days and went back to my black and learned to grapple with my lower belts with the humility and as a black belt. Man, I love that. All jujitsu, it is a personal journey. Even the, you know, students, they like, they kind of, they get in a bad rut when they start comparing their progression to somebody else. She always compare you a year ago. Can you beat me a year ago? It, around the board. It's a very personal journey. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. I want to go into this because you have pure bed academies all over. And it started, honestly, with you and your brother Egan starting a racquetball company. Because, you know, Egan was a stud, elite racquetball guy, which I, I talked to him. I'm like, I don't know how you were hitting the ball. Oh, you got to pre-hit it. Like, you lost me already. <laughs> but can you go into starting the company as the racquetball side? And I believe it was like a shooto gym. An old shooto gym was your first purebred. Well, what happened was, was Egan actually started a um, racquetball company called E-Force. And he ran E-Force. And E-Force was one of the top rackets as he was playing. Of course, I used E-Force. And what well, the movement from E-Force happened where, where Egan, when I was in Japan, Egan asked me to try and do the, if I can help with the E-Force side in Japan. Okay. There was a guy actually doing it already. And Egan asked him to have me join him in it. And he said, fuck that. I don't want to do it if Ensign's going to be a part of it, too. Oh. So Egan just said, okay, well, thanks for what you did. Ensign's going to take over from now. And that's <laughs> kind of what happened. So I started running Egan's racquetball company, E-Force, in uh, Japan. And I, I, you know, I decided to try and uh, start a new line of rackets for my line of rackets. Yeah. Because my name was really big in Japan. And as I'm selling E-Force, not to compete with E-Force, but just to start another line. I decided to start a, a racquetball company. And the reason why I came up with the name Purebred is because, as you know, if you have a racquetball company, if it's tennis or a racquetball, you need to have different lines of rackets. So the grassroots level, the intermediate level, the advanced level, the pro level. And you need names for the rackets. 
Yeah. So Egan yeah. had like a Terminator. He had Stealth. He had all these neat names for him. And I felt that if I named my company Purebred, I had a whole slew of animals to name my my um, you know, any type of animal. Purebred animal is a top line of, of the animals. You know, you can kind of get a mixture of a pit bull, but it, the purebred is actually the top of the line. So I figured my first racket that I made was called the boa. I could have went with all different types of animal names. I could name one the eagle. I could name one the tiger. You know, I could go in all these different names of animals. So that's the reason why I came up with the name Purebred. The reason why it became a fighting gym is because when I was running the racquetball company, I started the company as Purebred, not E-Force. I started as Purebred, as a registered company in Japan. And when Shuto fell into problems because uh, they were losing money with Sayama Satoru, the head guy, Nakamura Shacho, he called all the shoot fighters together and said, hey, we're going to close the gym down unless somebody's willing to take over. And no one could legitimately take it over because no one had a company besides them. So my company was sporting goods for racquetball goods, but because it was classified as sporting goods, I could add another classification as gym. And the reason why it's named Purebred is because Purebred gyms were put under my racquetball company, which is called Purebred. Yeah. I wish I had a cool story about Purebred fighters and that kind of stuff, but honestly, it was based on a racquetball company. That's, that's, but that's a great, like, behind the scenes tidbit. Cause you're, yeah, when you first hear, like, yeah, Purebred Academy, it's like, no, it, it goes back to racquetball. And the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, that's itself an interesting story, man. Yeah. And, you know, obviously your high level jujitsu. I'm going to pop into some of your matches now. And if any of these pictures incite memories, please go into it. We love your stories going into this fight, man. I'm going to do a second shot to show right after bam. I mean, you thought it was bad before, belly down. How bad was that elbow snapping, bro? I, I, I think that was the worst uh, break that I've done in my whole career of jiu-jitsu. Oh, man. As you know, as, as you being a jiu-jitsu person, you know that me, when he's, um, when I got an armbar on the guard, the, what's restricting me from fully extending is the ground. And as we know, as a black belt now, you don't try to pull your arm out, you try to stack because you want to work against the hip extending, where it's going to extend, fully extend your arm. So if you can stack, you can stop the extension. And of course, Royce Alger was a wrestler. Oh, And, you, you know, the first instinct when someone's grabbing your leg or grabbing your arm or whatever is to pull out of it. And huh. so as I'm doing a full extension with my hips, which is three times larger than his arm, yeah. he pulls me off the he lifts my back off the ground, which is the only restriction I had from fully extending. And like huh. a pendulum, it just swung. And I remember when, you know, you have the arm in the crotch and you can feel that when it's popping. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a lot of times it's like you feel when you're training and you're doing it and the guy not tapping, it pops. Like, oh, you, you kind of yeah, freak yeah, out because you really can feel that pop, you know. Yeah, it's like yeah. one little ligament rolling over. It's like, oh, shit, sorry, you okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in the fight, you're not even worried about the opponent's safety. So what I'm doing is I'm extending. I always classify my fights as if I got an arm bar, my image is I'm going to break off the limb and take it home. So I'm not going 70% thinking I want to tap him. I want to do it so I can tap him win the fight. That isn't even in my idea. My idea is to fully hyperextend and break the arm and take it home. So I fully extended. And I remember feeling that 
It wasn't a little ligament. You know, with the ligaments tearing or rolling over the joint, yeah. you can feel a pop, 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 pop. Yeah. It was one big pop. Oh, dude. I mean, for me, it Jesus. felt like the ligament snapped or the bone broke. So, probably both. Well, you know, the thing too is when you, of course, with your years in Jiu you probably had your arm hyperextended before. Yeah. And you pretty much can roll that day. It yeah, feels a little the, the elbow's funny that way, yeah. Yeah, you can you can roll, but the next day it's like you can't even lift your arm. <laughs> yeah. To see Royce in the ring already holding his arm where it's not moving, right there when I saw it, I said, oh, that's, that's a bad break because he would probably feel like he could. He would freak out on the pop, tap out, and later on be, you know, you see the guys that tap out on arm bars, they're standing normally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he was already holding his arm. Oh. And it kind of showed me that it was a pretty bad break. And those are the ones that kind of like echo and reverberate throughout the whole arena. Yeah. This <laughs> so, is br mean, brutal, man. <laughs> Absolutely brutal. But, you know, they're going to do it to you. So, like, I mean, MMA, self-defense especially, right? It's not like I'm not doing this for the ref to pull me off. The purpose is to break this thing. Yeah. Well, the purpose is to break it and take it home. And, of course, it yeah. was still attached to his shoulder. <laughs> so, as you can see. When I hyperextend and I go belly down, oh. I'm still arching. I'm still arching. Yeah, I'm not stopping arch. until McCarthy came and ran and said, stop the fight. And that's when I released. Other than that, I wasn't about to release. No way. Yeah. Uh, the pop absolutely. was just the beginning of tearing it off his shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, I'm halfway <laughs> done here. I got some barbecue yeah. sauce ready for this thing. <laughs> There's another one, one of the earlier fights with Rene Ruse. I mean, if you guys see the, the fight footage of this one, I mean, talk about, I mean, you're like hop, jump around, like about as jujitsu of a rear naked choke from a stand-up as you possibly can get. What was the experience like with that fight? Because that was very dynamic. That was the benefits of actually fighting in that day when they didn't have the rules down. It was mm. all over the place. And I remember in that fight, I remember before that fight in the rules meeting, Hickson was fighting in the tournament. I remember going up to Hickson and telling Hickson, shit, they're going to allow rope grabbing. How are you going to deal with that? And Hickson told me, don't worry, my friend. He holds with this arm, you hit him with that arm. You hold the other arm, you hit him with that arm. I was like, oh, shit. Damn, Hickson, you're, so, you're such a genius. And we got, I got this down, man. And watched Hickson fight his first match against Yamamoto. And yeah. Yeah. he took a beating because he couldn't, because Yamamoto kept holding the ropes. He couldn't take him down. And it wasn't as simple as, okay, he's holding with that arm, hit him on that side. And I think Hickson found that out. And I found out watching in the locker room, like, holy shit. So going into the fight, you know, Rene Rose was known as a very aggressive, dirty fighter. Mm, okay. Yeah, so I expected him to come rushing in and you with know, a flying knee or, or a big kick. And so my whole anticipation was he's going to attack me. So at the first sign of his closing distance, I'm going to close at the same time. And as you know, when, when you time at the right time, you can take him down easier. And mm -hmm. as you see in the fight, yeah. he wouldn't come. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all right, I'm coming to you. Make faces at him, trying to tempt him, trying to come on, come on. And he's not coming. Like, And in my mind, I'm like, holy shit, what am I going to do? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> totally different you can't game see it in the fight, but in the fight, I'm like, holy fuck, what am I going to do? How am I going to close distance? And, with my with my um impatience, I just luckily ran in without getting hit, and sure enough, boom, he grabbed the ropes. 
and almost went over. Like, like it was really close, man. Well, you know the ropes when he was grabbing the ropes. I it was so frustrating because I was trying to hit him when he was grabbing, yeah. but I couldn't hit him as good. Egan actually had the idea of foot stomping in the locker room. Oh, okay. And his yeah. he, and Lenny's Rose's foot was huge. Yeah. So you know, I, you know, everyone says, "Yeah, step in the middle of his foot and the bones, and you'll break the foot." You know, it's like the human body is not that easy to break. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unless I had a hammer and I could pound it on his foot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my heel was not breaking his foot, so I started <laughs> foot stomping, and you know, I noticed that uh, I got a lot of heat because he was six seven. The yeah, leverage tall. coming down on the elbows on my head and my shoulder. You know, back in the day, you could hit the back of the head. Mm -hmm. So I, I felt a lot of impact. I mean, sometimes I think I, I got a little dazed that some of the elbows, he was elbowing me in the head. Man. I remember thinking in my head, it was never planned. I remember thinking in my head, if he can lose the ropes, I can use the ropes too. Oh, interesting. So what I did was uh, I never thought of climbing to his back. I just thought of getting higher up so he doesn't get as much leverage on the elbows. Yeah, okay. And so... So I climbed up on the first ropes and then he, I guess he noticed he couldn't get as much leverage. So he kind of shook me down and I went back down on the ground. And at one point when we were spinning and, you know, turning and I was trying to, you know, grab him and turn around to his back and all this kind of stuff. I noticed as I was climbing on the ropes, I noticed I was almost on his back. And that's yeah. when I just like a ladder, I just climbed up to the ropes. And of course he doesn't know any grappling. So he didn't know how to defend his neck. Oh man, it was just, yeah. You were literally climbing. He's a tall I just dude. climbed up the ropes, and I figured I used the ropes. He used the ropes. I used the ropes. So I climbed up the ropes, and got to his back, and instant instantaneously he tried to jump out of the ring. Yes, I saw. Yeah, you guys almost went out. Oh, we are pretty much out. I think yeah. one of the, the referees grabbed one of my legs. Yeah, yeah. It's like whoa, and whoa. For, we're keep it live. For me, I, I was about. I was thinking to myself, I don't care if we fall out of the ring. By the time we get up off the, off the ground in the ring, he's going to be out cold in the ground, and I'm going to climb back into the ring without him. Wow. So, fit, yeah, I, I wasn't even worried. I had my head tucked, and I was just praying to God that I didn't hit my head on the canvas or hit huh. my head on the ring or on the way out. And I just thought, I'm going to hold on to this choke until we hit the ground. And as we're on the ground, I'm not going to let go until the referee gets to me, which is going to probably take five, uh, five or six seconds to get to me. Oh, and sure, by yeah. then, I'd have like 10 seconds holding the choke, and he'd be yeah. out cold. Yeah, 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 easy. Yeah, that was an amazing fight. Honestly, you didn't win this match, but it was one of the best MMA fights in history. Not just my opinion, but multiple other people think so as well. And that's against Frank Shamrock. And to me, a fighter's true love is in this picture right here. Come on. I mean, <laughs> this is like, I'm having a blast. I'm at my peak of living life here. That man, that was a hard battle. And like I said, one of the best MMA matches I've ever seen. You kind of put us in your shoes that day in that fight. Yeah, um, Frank was the, the pancreas champion. I was the Shuto champion. So it was a lot more involved than just me and Frank. It was about me representing Shuto. You know, Frank was smaller. So I felt I had the, you know, I had the upper hand. Technically, I thought I was better. I know he was like a cardio monster. So I knew cardio was going to be a, if one of the issues that I'm going to have. But I just thought that I'm going to go balls out until my cardio runs out and give myself the best shot when I'm fresh and, you know, okay. take it to him. Take it to him like he's never been – he's never had a fight taken to him before. So that was my whole goal is just go full on, try to kill him until he kills me or I kill him. Man, 
which is the way, I mean, in reality, in reality, without refs and points, I mean, that's what it is. I love that's always ingrained in your essence or your being. And I love to, it's been a couple of times this happened, but Egan's always the big brother and he, uh, he jumps in. <laughs> uh, that's the guy you want in your corner though. Well, Egan understood my mindset and he knew that never to throw in the towel. Hmm. That I'd rather die in the ring. Thank God I did never die in the ring. But yeah. at the moment when I was fighting, I was willing. And I thought the happiest way to die for me is to die in the midst of battle. Oh, I love that. That's and it's so funny that, you know, I never realized what I was putting Egan through. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but my okay. wife, my wife is a fighter now. Oh. And she kind of fights like me. So she'll, she'll just go straight up and throw down with people. And I remember after one of her fights, she came out all bruised up. She won the fight. I remember Egan messaging me saying something. Oh, finally, you know how I felt in all your fights. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you see it. You see it on that end. Uh, yeah, but you know, you know, with Egan in the corner, be, being a brother and being as passionate as he is, you, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky that he never threw in the towel. Especially in yeah. the Igor fight, he never threw in the towel because it would have took Dude. away a lot from what I learned in the Igor fight. So, yeah. you know, I'm lucky that he didn't do that. But in another view that you can look at it is that he might be a little bit too passionate. You know, the way he ran in the ring to try and defend me. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it, caught, it, considered, it was considered a DQ because of that. But you know, I was knocked out. So I don't consider it a DQ. I consider it a kill on uh, Frank's uh, behalf. Yeah. I mean, he, but, yeah, that, that preceded it. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, you wonder, yeah, if there's too much passion as being a brother. Yeah, yeah. But that in the Nogira match, when you're, he knows you're out. And, and some of these fights now, you'll see someone just guillotine, a person's out. We're at like 20, 20 Mississippi, 21 Mississippi. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, take him off. What's the ref doing? Or a recent body slam in USC, and the guy's like hammer fisting seven times with elbows and you want an awesome guy in your corner. And yeah, Egan obviously knows you and where you're going to push things. Everybody's different. And, and obviously everybody's wired different. That's why I want to ask you this. And I'm sure it's different per fight you do. But like, what was your mentality? Like, I'm going in the ring or cage. And how are you mentally mindset already walking into there? Put us in your shoes on renouncers going and getting ready to go. What is your kind of premeditated mindset? Just let's go in here and do business. During the training, before the fight. During the walkout, I've already am prepared and admitted that I'm going to die tonight. Wow, wow. That that alone, you know, it's not something that you can sit and say, I'm going to go, I'm going to fight next week, or I'm going to fight in three months. I'm going to die. I'm willing to die in the ring. It's something that you have to really, you know, you have a lot of fighters in there saying that, yeah, I'm willing to die. I'm never going to tap. But as soon it's, as they get into a situation, tough. they tap. You know, yeah, and I'm soft. not saying they're they're full of shit or anything. I'm just saying they don't understand what it really feels like to be in the heat of the moment of actually at the verge of possibly dying. Yeah, and you know, it takes a lot of hard training. It's a takes a, takes a lot of mental focus to accept. Every day you're training hard. You you, you don't want to train anymore because you're tired. And put in my head that. The harder I train, the less chances of me dying in the fight. I'll train hard. I'll train harder. I'll I'll get up the next day and run when I'm, my legs are sore. You know, I'll do that because I really believe in my heart. I, I 
Wow. It, it's not a simple thing to do, but I I tear up sometimes before the fight thinking of that, thinking of, man, this is going to be, this might be my last day. If my fight's on April 10th and someone comes to me and says, hey, there's a party on April 15th, will you come? And I'll be like, yeah, okay, okay, shoot, what time? I'll, I'll see you there after my fight, everything. And inside of me, I'm thinking, wow, if I'm driving to that party on April 15th, that's a good thing because that means I didn't die on April 10th. That's how much I actually accepted the fact that I was going to die. That's insane. Yeah, because a lot of people do like talk that way, but in, in the heat of the moment, like there's a fight or flight mechanism that's just wired into you. And, and a lot I'm of people think too, they're but... willing to die. They think they're willing to die until it actually happens. Wow. And man. you know, that's so deep, man. It's super you're walking deep. into the ring. You, if you know, when you watch me walking into the ring, now with this in mind, look at me. I'm, I'm a person walking in there by, with my, at my own will, walking into the area. And I admit today that I'm going to die. I, I'm willing to die today. And when you think about that, when you think about dying and you think of anything else besides dying, it's nothing. Hyperextending wow, and breaking your arm. What does that mean to you if you compare it to dying? It's wow. nothing. So yeah, like I would imagine, like if someone slaps on a ankle lock or an arm bar or a shoulder lock, something on you, you're like, I'm fighting to the bitter end on this, like legit. Yeah, I'm gonna do what I what I can to get out of that lock. But if I hear my ankle popping, it's just my ankle. It's just my ankle. I got my arms. I got my legs. I got my other leg. I got my fist. You know, it's just my ankle. You know, so it, it's it's this. Some, to put it in a, people can't understand that. To put it in a really good metaphor is, if I go to Las Vegas, something simple, something that uh, an average person can understand. If I go to Las Vegas and I have $10,000 in my bank account, but I only brought five grand with me and I'm losing money and I'm there and I'm saying, okay, wait, I'm willing to lose my five grand. And I go in there and I start losing. And the first day I'm down two grand. I got three grand left for a three-day trip. Next day I'm at four grand losing. And I got 1,000 left to play. I start getting nervous. I start wanting to oh. make my bet smaller because I'm afraid of that limit that I gave myself was only 5,000. And as I'm getting close to that 5,000, I'm getting scared. Hmm. But if I'm going into the, the casino and say, I'm willing to lose all my money, $10,000. And I'm at 4,000. I still got 6,000. Nothing scares me yet. Until I hit that verge of getting close to 10, that's when I start getting scared. So, you know, when you die, you don't know you're going to die. When you get choked out unconscious, you don't know if you're going to wake up in three seconds or if you're going to not ever wake up. Mm -hmm. There's no fear involved in that because mm -hmm. you don't know if you're going to die or not. And, you know, yeah. a joint breaking. I mean, people nowadays say that's so stupid. You may as well yeah. have to train another day. You know, that, that I agree with that 100%. If you're about the sport and you're training to become a champion in the sport and to become famous and rich, I agree with you 100%. But in my day, there was no fame. There was no money. And we were not fighting for money or becoming popular or sponsorship. We were fighting for our honor. Yeah. And I yeah. tell you what, if, if I had to test myself to the limit, and I could never use my right arm again. That right losing that right arm was worth what I've gained as a man with honor. And I would die to do that. So, I, you know, it's I a can, whole different outlook. It really is. And you walk 
the I mean, it's who you are. It's not like I said. I you know you hear guys talk, uh, and someone's to wrap their own self up, right? Like a little own self pep talk. Now this is like real shit. And by the way, anybody listening, if you're not totally fucking fired up to go into the gym and work out right now or train, I'm riled. I'm ready to rock. This is amazing. I want to ask you this too. I'm going to get some of the other fights, but I have to ask you. There should be a movie made about you, whether it's like you're exactly you or not. Who would play you in a movie? Who, who would you want to see? Some super good-looking in-shape guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's you awesome. Play me, wow, that's a good question. I've seen so many great actors, man. I mean, I love what Tom Cruise did in Top Gun. This, the, oh, dude, the that, new, that new that one. was amazing. Yeah, that was like one of the best action films I've seen like forever. I don't know. He'd be the right guy, though. I'm not sure. I, that that <laughs> that was a real big curveball you threw me, man. I, I, <laughs> I can't give you a real good answer right now. <laughs> but something, whether it's like literally you or story based on you, like, yeah, because it's you have an amazing journey, whether it's jujitsu, MMA, so on and so forth. And I want to kind of dive in to one of the biggest names you ever took on and beat. And that's Randy Couture. And another super nasty armbar. Again, inverted, going belly down on that. What was that fight like? And how nasty was that arm block? Well, that fight was something that um, I got offered Dan Severin or Randy Couture. Oh, okay. And Dan Severin had another booking of his pro wrestling thing. And, you know, Dan Severin was fighting almost every weekend. He's a crazy number of fights. Yeah. And Randy Couture, I felt, was over my head. He was a current UFC champion, but he mm. was actually having a problem with the UFC mm. and was going to fight in Japan. And so they said, Randy Couture, and I, I was like, why not? I got nothing to lose. And as I was training for the fight, I got a lot of interviews, and every single interview was about, oh, Randy Couture, are you going to be okay? To a point where I got a little upset with it, like, man, you guys not giving me any chance at all, and yeah, I some credit, felt, man. Yeah, I always felt in my head that you know Randy Couture is, of course, yes. If you if we fight a hundred times, he'd probably beat me ninety nine times. But there is that one time, and I feel Randy mm. Couture is a human being like me. He breathes, eats, and shits like me. Yeah, yeah. So if I grab his arm, it's going to break like my arm would be broken if someone grabbed my arm. If I grab, oh, cut wow. off the, the the blood to his brain, he'd sleep like I would sleep. And it's just about me, you know. I don't care if you have, he has 99 roads to victory and I have one. If we walk my road, his 99 roads don't mean shit. Wow, man. That's, that's so real. Wow. And yeah, I yeah. felt that as long as there was that one road that I could walk, it's my job to train hard, to be prepared, to try and walk that one road. And, you know, my whole thing was coming up balls out and not giving him any time to rest. So my whole thing was, in back in the day, again, the benefits of fighting back in the day, they had no regulations on what you what you put on your feet and your tape. I right. literally, those white um, medical tapes, mm -hmm. I literally put two rows each on each leg, on each shin. And I wasn't wrapping around the whole leg. There was a couple layers going around my calf and around my ankles to support the whole tape. But the whole bundle of the tape was all on the top of my shin. In the locker room, I kicked a wood chair, barely felt it on my shin because I had so much tape on my... I was like, it was like a cast. <laughs> so my idea was that was I, I felt my first idea is the only time you can really control a play is the first three seconds. 
after that, it's going to go depending on what he does and what I do and how everything moves. But I felt that I'm going to walk in. Whichever leg he's putting forward, I'm going to walk in with an inside low kick, full force, not worrying about a takedown or anything else. And I want to snap his leg in half with that first kick. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's what I did. He walked in. I walk, He walked in. He was orthodox. I had to step in with that left leg inside. Nailed it with the kick. Didn't break the leg. <laughs> yeah. And then he grabbed my leg, took me down. Yeah, so from there, I, I just felt no matter what I'm doing, I want to attack. So when I was in the guard, I tried to attack the armbar, the triangle. When he separated from me, I, I felt even if I'm on back, I'm going to attack, kick his legs, kick his upper half. And it kept on attacking. He, he stood back once. I decided to stand up right away and throw down with him again. Yeah, so I got lucky. And I felt that I got lucky because he saw me fight Royce Alger. He was in the heavyweight tournament. He won the heavyweight tournament when I armbarred Royce Alger. So he oh. knows about my armbars. So when the second time he was in my guard and I swiveled my hips over, I paused at his shoulder. If you watch the thing, as if you watch the um, video again, I paused at his shoulder because he had both arms around my head. He's trying to stack me, and I'm thinking, okay, he knows if I if I wrap my if I get my leg over, he's gonna stack me because he has both hands on my head. So I figured I'm gonna pause at the shoulder and see what he does. And what ha when I paused at the shoulder, I felt him release his arm to strike and oh, that's when i knew if i passed the arm but the leg over his face one arm's not going to be able to stack me and that's when i passed you know of course because i had the leg right on the shoulder all i yeah. needed to do was pass the head it was like a it's like right there. fast slide over the head and then he he i sprouted him released to punch slid that leg over and then god a blessing of god he started to pull try to pull his arm out and I knew I had it in tight. I had it in tight. And when he started to pull, pull his arm out, I remember going belly down. And I remember his arm, um, there was about four or five different pops. Oh. <laughs> so I'm not sure if it broke ligaments or tore ligaments or just it was ligaments were rolling oh. over. But there are a lot of damage to the arm in that one. So I remember going pop, 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 pop. And I remember him feeling him tap my calf muscle or my leg, my shin area. And I remember thinking to myself, holy shit, Randy Couture is tapping. And, and in my mind, I was like, we walked that one road. We yeah. walked that one road, the only road that I had. It is possible, man. <laughs> that is amazing. That's like an expression, to walk that one road. What would your training be like? Because you said with Frank Shamrock, Randy Couture, I'm just going to come at him like, you know, like fire. Like when you're doing rounds and things like that, like how would you... With your style, like, would you approach the training so that you're like overwhelming them immediately and carrying on? Well, I was training three times a day. I was doing two in the morning, two in the afternoon, and about four at night. So my whole day was training and sleeping and eating. That's it. And the last session would always be like a um, they call it like a bull ring where you stay in the middle and you get a fresh guy coming at you every yeah. every so many minutes. Yeah, I was broken down. I was I mean I was broken down in training. I built that Yamadami through the training because, um, you know, as you know, in the arena, there's spotlights, there's people watching, there's video that's going to be always there. Yeah. You got all these, you know, fans screaming and it's easy to be tough. It's easy to work through a lot of pain. But when you're in the gym, there's nobody watching. There's nobody, there's nothing going to be left. 
you you you're going to and you know you're going to a fresh guy every time you know you know in the ring you got whatever the round is five minute rounds ten minute rounds whatever it is that's all you got that's it but in yeah training you're gonna go fucking 10 rounds with with fresh guys for five minutes each round you know it's like it's endless so that i there's a lot of times where my my yamato damashi has not held up in training the crazy thing about that is if you talk to all my training partners, they'll disagree because they've never seen me give up in training. I've never turned bellied up and said, I'm done. I've walked through every training, but I know because I knew in my heart, I gave up. Wow. wow. I, I knew I had more rounds. So I turtled up and I didn't gotcha. move like I could move because I would knew I had more rounds to do. And I could, I could walk out of training some days with my brother telling me, fuck, man, you push so hard. That's awesome. And I'm in there pissed off at myself saying, you fucking pussy. Wow. You didn't give 100%. Yeah, I, there's a lot of days like that. So those days are days that I'm building myself. As long as I'm yeah. aware of it and I can push myself harder the next time, I'm aware of it. I'm, I'm, that's important. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, there's a many days that I was praised by my training partners, but I was I went to bed swearing at myself because I because I knew I gave up. They just didn't know. And you knew what, yeah, your your potential is, you know, where you could go. But I mean, it pushes you, and most guys don't have the discipline to even call themselves a pussy. There, they're just like, oh, yeah, I was like, go around, you know. And I want to talk real quick about losses because a lot of people, like we kind of talked earlier, they see the guy who's got the gold medal or the award, you know, the belt or whatever. And what builds you is the losses. You're not success overnight. What's a good way for people? And it's not even as extreme as like obviously a professional MMA match or self-defense, but some people just doing like a local competition or whatever, you know, or even a tough day training. What's a good way to grow and learn from your losses? I think what's important is what you classify losses and wins as. Hmm. If you want to be real superficial and say, don't you, you're victorious when you have your arm raised or you have a belt or you have a medal or you want to go into a deeper side. And for me, my, my whole win or loss is due to what I did for myself, how hard I pushed myself. So winning and losing is something you cannot control because especially in fighting, you get hit with the wrong punch. If you're being promoted for a job and someone else could promote it, all you can control is giving you a hundred percent. So for mm -hmm. me, my wins and losses weren't determined on whether my hand was raised in the ring or not. It was whether I gave 100%. And it also was due to if I could improve as a fighter. So if my hand's not raised in the ring, did you win or lose? I don't know. I'll yeah. let you know in the next fight. What I learned from this fight, how much harder I can push in training for the next fight. If I step in the ring a better fighter, that loss was a victory. And so wow. for me, I feel like I tell my students, don't worry about wins or losses. Worry about trading hard and giving yourself 100% in the ring. If you want to put into a regular person's ideas that yeah. you go fighting for a promotion, just give your 100%. If the other guy's 100% is better than you, he'll get promoted and you won't. And then you can learn from that. Oh, he did that. I didn't do this. Next time I'm going to do this. Yeah. And if you can learn from that, and have a better chance of a promotion the next time. That experience was a victory. So the idea is to become a better person, become a better mm. fighter. And through these experiences, like the fights, for us fighters, it's the fights. 
if we can learn and become a better person every time we fight, whether you win or lose, yeah, it's victory. I I had a bigger victory fighting Igor Vovachanchin than I did with Randy Couture. Yeah, and that was man, that was a hardcore fight as well. Another one of the best fights I've ever seen. And this, like I said, we're talking like people listening. You were a professional fighter, and some people are like, "Well, I got a wife, I got kids, I got my regular job," and it's like, uh, "I'm not sure if I should roll a day or should, maybe I'll go once a week." And it's like, "Oh man, nothing I'm hearing you saying this entire interview is do less." You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Get in there, right? Get in there, train as many days a week as you can. Yeah, and you know, you know what's the real interesting that you say that is everything I've learned in fighting. I'm not a fighter anymore. I don't I don't spar hard rounds. I, I my my body's weak. Mm. My knees are frail. I can't spar as much. Mm -hmm. But everything I learned training MMA, I apply to my life today. Everything. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. You have some movies as well. We got Red Belt's movie. And of course, Hawaii 50. <laughs> Sorry to see that to be over. Well, what were those experiences like getting into the film and television side of the business? That was a amazing experience i was uh, contacted for red belt by uh, rico ciparelli he was close to um david mamet oh the director, david mamet, director yeah yeah david mamet personally requested me for the part and at first i was like i'm not an actor i can't i can't act you know i, I was actually going to turn it down really yeah because i just felt like i'm not a fighter i didn't want to take advantage of my fame in fighting to be overstep some actors who are working every day to become an actor. So I didn't want to do that. And, you know, like kind of like CM Punk going into the UFC ring because he's yeah. a pro wrestler. You know, yeah. that kind of, I had that idea. I didn't want to take advantage of my status as a fighter to get a catapulted into the, the world of acting when I'm a shitty actor. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, you know, I felt, you know, it's not, I, I don't know if it's worth my time because it, it was good pay, but I, they wanted me to find myself there, get my own hotel and everything. So I like, oh, I don't know if it's worth it. It's not worth my time. And I'm lucky that I just decided, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. And from day one that I worked onto that set, from all the the photo shoots, the sizing, the fitting, the, you know, watching the actors, you know, do their part. You know, I mean, the, the production, the magnitude of a Hollywood production is amazing. And not to mention the catering, the food catering that they had. Every lunch was like a fucking gourmet meal. Oh, man. I had my, because I had was one of the main actors, I had my own trailer. Oh, that's awesome. What does that feel like? Yeah. You're like getting pampered over here. <laughs> no, I, I had a lady bring on my wardrobe for the day. I had to go into makeup, fitting. They called me coming in. You know, I had my own like assistant help calling me around taking wow. me to the photo shoots and it was amazing. And you know what was actually the most amazing thing besides the, the magnitude of production was David Mamet. He greeted us like, you know, I, I heard he's like uh, the Spielberg of that generation. It was a great film. And, I loved it. I mean, he's like a genius and he's like one of the top producers and he comes up to me and goes, what do you think of the aspect of the, the whole movement of the movie? I'm like, I'm thinking inside, I'm thinking, who gives a shit what I think? I'm such an amateur, you the man, you know? And I just <laughs> thought, I just told him, I should, I, I love it. I said, because the fact that he's relinquishing his belt because of honor, yeah. I felt like that's right down the way of Yamato Damashi. 
Oh, and he goes, oh, Yamato Damashi, what is that? And he goes, I said, well, it's about what your movie is. He goes, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you write something about Yamato Damashi? I'm like, oh, shit, I will. And I went to FedEx that night and freaking spent like hours writing, writing, uh, you know, what Yamato Damashi is. Wow, really? And I went in with a non-speaking part. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I went with a non-speaking part. And he came in and the next day... He, he was on set. He saw me there. He called me over. He said, what do you have? And I gave him a short version, a long version. And he read it out and he goes, perfect. I'm like, perfect. What does he mean? Perfect. He goes, I want you to read this in the script. I said, which one? He goes, both. <laughs> and, then, and then for me, I, I had no idea what that meant. You know, I, I had no idea what, you know, having a speaking part or non-speaking part meant. Yeah. And some of the extras are like, holy shit, you're going to get a speaking part. I'm like, what does that mean? Maybe you get residuals because this, because that, you get wow. that. Like, oh, really? So, oh, shit. Yeah. So he put it in an interview. Like, and, you know, for me, money didn't mean anything. Fame didn't mean anything. But mm. my whole mission in life is to spread the word of Yamato Damashi. Yeah. And I could spread that word in that huge movie. It Beautiful, was so babe. lucky. Yeah. And when you're reciting it, like you said, you're not an actor, but you just kind of went, kind of like you did with me when you're talking about it. You just kind of just go into the zone of how you would normally talk about that. Is that? Well, I was lucky. I was lucky because my parts in the movie, yeah, the character yeah. I played, is exactly the things that I would do. Like for him feeling honored, it was dishonorable to hold the belt and relinquish the belt. I could feel that in my heart. Reading the interview, like a, the interview about talking about Yamato Damashi. I do that a lot. I do a lot of interviews after fights. So nothing pulled me out of character where it would, everyone would realize he's a shitty actor because yeah. I was in character the whole time, my Ensign Inouye character. It's when you're not sad and you got to act sad. It's when you don't want to cry when you got to cry. Gotcha. That's when you realize that this fucking guy can't act. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I did everything that my no I normally would do and I've done before. So no one realized how shitty of an actor I was, and it actually turned out pretty good. It, it turned out great. Yeah, and then being a Hawaii Five, oh, that was amazing. We talked a little last time. I loved you going to this with your bracelets and Destiny Forever. You know, there's a lot of meaning behind it. I know you painstakingly will go out and find Jade and, and things like that. And you also had a, a story about a car crash that I would love people on this podcast to hear about. The reason why I started wearing the bracelets is because in Japan, the bracelets... We believe it protects you. Mm. So if your bracelet you're wearing breaks, all that means is it's taking something that was supposed to come to you in place for you. So wow. injury, death, um, accidents, you know, anything. And that's why I started wearing my bracelets. And, you know, someone gave it to me as a present. I thought it was cool, man. Look cool. Yeah. My whole thing was about it being cool. Never knew what the stones meant, anything. And I wore it. And I, I had a 600 Mercedes Benz. And I crashed on the highway going about 150 miles per hour on wet oh. roads. And I had, I had studless tires. Jeez. So I didn't know that with the studless tires on wet roads, it'll like hydroplane your car. Man, so you're like, oh, that's crazy. That's I was crazy. flying and I, I, felt my, my, I felt the car doing this little like, almost like it was hydroplaning. Holy shit. It felt scary. And it, it was a straightaway. So I felt, okay, I'm not turning. I'm safe. So I just picked up the speed, and when I felt it hydrofoiling, I, I made the biggest mistake. And instead of just 
letting off the accelerator, letting it slow down naturally going straight, I threw on the brakes. And that caused the car to start going sideways. Oh, And I'd say at least at 100 miles per hour, my car was going sideways down the street and the highway. That's and, beyond insane. That's like beyond Tokyo Drift, bro. That, and something, something grabbed where it started shooting to the wall. And it hit a concrete. You know the highway has those uh, guardrails. Yeah. And every so many feet, there's a concrete pillar going into the co- the pavement. Mm-hmm. I hit that pavement, that pillar. I remember thinking, "What does it feel like to get knocked out by a car crash?" And I remember thinking, "Okay, I'm going to try to be aware of my surroundings as much as possible as I'm going towards the wall." And I'm thinking, "Okay, here we go, here we go," and boom! All of a sudden, I don't lose consciousness. Airbags come out from the door and from the steering wheel. And I, the, in, from the impact, we bounced, went all the way, we bounced all the way back across the four lane highway and rest on the other side. I get out of the car, my left front tire, I can't even find it. I don't know where it flew to. Jeez. I went to the pillar that I banged, and there are screws about a thickness of a quarter. And it was about two inches out of the concrete. So that pillar stopped my car from going over a 20-foot drop where I saw my license plate at the bottom. Man, dude. I had to get a towing company to tow the car, got home and said, shit, where's my bracelet? (laughs) Called the towing company and they they found the bracelet under the gas pedal. It was broken. And right there I was like, it saved me. I had a fat lip from the airbag. That's it. That's it? That's Dude, it. Dude, I mean, like, on paper, you I, should be dead. Total the Mercedes Benz. That's insane. Yeah, alive. dude. You After that, you're like, I'm sold. We're going <laughs> to. And, you know, then as time passed, as I started making the braces for myself and started putting them online, I realized that every stone has its own property. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that because I've been wanting to get one of the bracelets. Last thing you did talk about properties. And also, it's not just like, hey, this is shipped from whatever. Like, you would go out of your way. I believe it's like Belize. And then you go all over and find the different stones to use. I've learned later on that the properties mean something. And the crazy thing about it is, as I'm selling my bracelets in Hawaii and throughout the world, it's gotten a reputation as being healing bracelets. And I'm getting so many testimonials, so many results that I personally don't put this on and say, Oh, I feel energy. I feel power. But there's so many people that do feel it. And call it placebo, call it whatever it is, mind. If it works, it works. And it's been around forever for a reason, right? Yes. And it's doing really well now. Yeah. You store it in Hawaii, I believe. Yes, I have a shop in Hawaii and only Mm. have it open when I'm in Hawaii. So right now it's closed. Oh, gotcha. And other than that, worldwide, I have destinyforever.com that I do online sales. Number one, they look amazing. I mean, as far as just uh, looking good with your outfit or whatever, but the meaning behind it. And there's obviously on there more about the different properties and things like that. But yeah, I thought that was amazing. That story is just absolutely bonkers, bro. <laughs> That's, uh, just kind of wrapping up here, if you don't mind, I remember hearing the story from you. And every time I think of it, I'm like, your whole life is a movie. Like, yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's like it really is. Like with you know, the like, yakuza you, problems, the yeah. crazy fights. And- <laughs> you can't make you can't make this shit up. And actually, literally, I wanted to go specifically into that one with the, it was a yakuza beef with one guy that kind of was avoiding you and jerking around business wise. If you can briefly go into that story, because I'm like 
this guy literally doesn't he doesn't give a shit. He <laughs> it's like ever since the beginning of this interview, ever since when you're a little kid standing up to bullies, you're like, I don't you're gonna kick my ass. Okay, I'm standing up for myself, motherfucker. Can you go into that story? Because it's fucking awesome. Which was that the one about the guy who was taking care of Yamamoto kid? I believe so. Yeah, because uh, you wind up beating the shit out of him for 20 minutes. Does that help refresh your memory? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's only three uncles that I did that to, so I think he's. I know which one you're talking about. But yeah, so well, he was uh, he was a yakuza guy that was training at my gym. Most gyms in Japan don't allow yakuza to train because when yakuza train, a lot of the regular members are real hesitant to go to the gym or to train with them. So I allowed him to train. He had this idea that he wanted to open up a gym. It called Purebred Tokyo. So I said, yeah, if you want to open up a gym. I have actually, a, ironically, someone sent me a picture of the advertisement of the gym. Oh, really? I'll send you that picture after we get off so you can use sure. it. Sure. Oh, for sure, dude. Yeah. But um, yeah, so anyway, my whole thing was for him was he wants to open up a gym. I said, okay, all I ask you to do is to hire two of my students because I want you know, my the dream for a fighter at the time was to make a living off fighting instead of having to work a side job. Mm -hmm. So he asked me, okay, who you want to hire? I said, I want to hire Kid Yamamoto and Ryan Bull. Yes. Yeah, too, yeah. Yep. So they hired Kid Yamamoto and Ryan Bull. And, you know, as Kid got famous, this guy started getting like, you know, Kid had a problem with, I believe that fame and money is a sickness. And if you mm -hmm. don't have a way to control it, it'll overwhelm you as a person. And you might become a very undesirable person to be around, a disloyal person. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened with Yamamoto Kid. Is he, mm -hmm. he got famous and he got a lot of money and he thought he was too big for his britches. Started acting a little bit off my style. And this guy, Eiji, this Yakuza guy, was in charge of Kid. So I kind of told him, hey, put Kid in line, man. He's acting like this. He's doing this bullshit. Put him in line. The guy decides to go into cahoots with Kid and not listen to me. So I go to the gym a couple times looking for him, and he knows I'm looking for him. He's running away. Call the gym. Doesn't return my calls. So right here, I'm like already to his point, like this fucking guy. I want to give him a slap. And yeah. what, it, what actually elevated to a different level of anger was when Kid fought a Heroes Tournament, he won. Yeah, I saw that guy in the ring with kid jumping around, hugging him, and all happy. And I felt, yeah. I felt disrespected. I felt like, okay, this yeah. guy's avoiding me and hiding me, but in the arena, he's right there on TV hugging him. I was watching the fight on TV. We we're supposed yeah. to go drinking out of hostess club after the after the watching the fights. And when I saw him in the ring, I changed the plans and I said, I'm gonna find this motherfucker. <laughs> Yeah. So we went to the after party. I know where he's at. Yeah. <laughs> I know where he's at. We went to the after party. I was going to go in there and drag him and Kid out and beat both of them up. But my students, uh, my guys that were with me said, and said that's going to create a huge, big ruckus. So we'll go down and get AG out first. After that, I was going to get Kid and beat him up. Damn. So I was waiting in a park. They brought him in, and he knew he was in trouble. Still, he played that that fucked up role. Like, hey, Anson, how you doing? Like, and I was like, oh, how you doing? Yeah, boom, kicked him in the leg. That's how I'm doing. Eh? And he's not a fighter. He's not a fighter, so leg, leg kicks hurt him. Damn. And, and he fell on the ground. I stood him back up. I said, you running from me? I said, how about if I break your fucking leg so you can't run from me? 
<laughs> in the meantime, because there's all this, you know, the, the underworld grapevine travels really fast. And from the point when I was looking for them, looking oh, for really? the after party, um, a lot of the other guys knew what was happening. And there was a bunch of, there was uh, another guy from a different family came down. And I was friends with that guy too. But he came down to try and ask me to stop. So every time I dropped, AG, he would come in front of me and stand in front of me and bow down and say, please forgive him, please forgive him. Holy and shit. I kind of shove him on the side and backhand AG in the face. He falls, set him up. The guy would be right in front of me, bowing down to my belly button and asking for forgiveness when he's not, he's asking forgiveness for someone else. So wow. it's so funny because you got these little old ladies in Japan that are like gangsters. So we're in there and they're making a, we're making a big noise because I'm beating someone up. This old lady comes out of the house near the park. She says, hey, you guys, shut up. You guys are making too much noise. <laughs> so one of my guys starts arguing with the lady. I'm like, you know what? Drop it. She's going to call the police. Drop it. So we said, sorry. We walked over. I dragged the Yakuza guy to the next park. There was two parks next to each other. As we get to the next park, because the grapevine is so fast, his higher-ups come through the bushes in like... It was almost like the movies where these guys coming through the bushes. What the Three fuck? guys coming through the bushes. Like like rolling their rolling their R's and you know and screaming at me. And they want to have it on. My guys stop them. And I told my guys, don't stop them, let them come. And when the guy came, I told him I just want to say one one thing. And if you don't like it, I said, whatever, we can have it on. And Basically, I can't. I, I wouldn't be able to stand up to Yakuza families. They would crush me in a second. Mm. But I was willing to fight to the death if I had to because I felt I was right. So I just told him, AG fucked me over. If someone fucked you over and you only did 20% of what you really wanted to do, don't you think that's being nice? And AG was still standing, but he was all wobbling. His face was all blood. And he goes, what do you mean 20%? Look at him. And I looked at the guy, his name was Hasegawa. And I said, Hasegawa, I said, if I wanted to kill Eiji, how fast you think I could kill him? He goes, I don't know. What do you mean kill him? I said, yeah, if I wanted to kill him, I've been hitting him for 20 minutes. I said, don't you think that's pretty nice that that's all he looks like right now? And that guy just changed his whole tune. I'm still in relationship with this guy, Hasegawa, till today. That is fucking rock star. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why I'm so amazed by it is... It's none of it's puffing your chest or talking out your ass. Like this is literally who you are. You are that to a T. That's why you have the nickname of it. What kind of wound up happening to the guy? So what happened was the guy actually told me that if he doesn't make things right, I'll kill him myself. Wow. The guy ended up getting discharged from the Yakuza group. And wow. the guy Hasegawa was really high up today. And we're still in relationship today. Directly related to this incident with Yamamoto, what happened? Kid? Oh, well, yeah. Well, what happened eventually with that was uh, I just pretty much cut myself from that whole situation. And Kid Yamamoto kind of went on his own. He uh, he was running Purebred Tokyo, and he named it Killer Bee. Mm, oh, yeah. And I guess he wanted to go under his own entity. So although we did supply the mats and the machines and everything for the gym, the Killer Bee gym, without telling me anything he closed it down and he started what he has now is crazy b gotcha 
man, it's just, I feel like I just watched the Guy Ritchie movie. <laughs> that should be the director. We just, we got the director down at least. Uh, <laughs> man, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you, man. It's been too long. Are there any future goals or plans you have? The nearest goal that I have now is I'm already completed book two. It's in publishing right now. Oh. Yeah. Wait, so, shit. Book... I don't think I knew about the first book. What the fuck? Oh, yeah. There's book one. You should check it out. It has my career. It has the Yakuza incidents and no exaggerations in the book. All real names, all real stories, all real Yakuza family names. Everything's the same. Everything's real. So that book was really interesting because it covered a lot of interesting stories in my career. Mm -hmm. And book two is going to be more on my gel sentence, my pilgrimage, my walk across Japan. I think it's a lot deeper. And also but, like the help you did with the earthquake and tsunami uh, in 2011. That was... That will be in the man. book too. What's the name of the first book for everybody? The first book was Live as a Man, Die as a Man, Become a Man. And you get that everywhere. Yeah, you can get it on Amazon or my website, destinyperfect.com, wherever. Oh man, that that's amazing. Hey, you guys, has anybody approached you about like, maybe off of the book or whatever, a uh, documentary, like a... Somebody did talk about it. Um, it was only talks though, but hmm. not being um, arrogant or loving myself, I think it would be a pretty crazy movie. Fuck yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you read the book, you'll probably see a lot more stuff you never knew, like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I'm open to, if anyone who's interested in doing a documentary or a story on myself... I don't know if my name's big enough as far as, you know, making like a Conor McGregor story or a Lance Armstrong story. I don't know if Ensign Inouye has a big enough of a ring to actually hit the Hollywood community. But if there's any director that think that it's uh, something that they're interested in, I'm 100% wanting to do that someday. And I would love my story to be out. I think it is a very interesting story. I would watch the shit out of that right now. I'm actually going to pick up the book as soon as we're done. After you read my book, you might want to have me on again. <laughs> oh, sh yeah, shit, yeah. A million percent. When's the second book kind of geared up for release? Um, the second book, it's actually in a chronological order. And when I was writing the first book, it got too long. Okay. And I, I figured out, you know what? I may as well cut it right here, make book one, and then already got material for book two. Dude. Book one goes all up until uh, pretty much covers my fighting career and some of my uh, Yakuza incidents. And I think that book two is a lot deeper. It covers what? a lot of my, a lot of deeper things that I went through that kind of sculpted who I am today. Wow. Is that being released this year? Yes, this year. It's in you... the editing already. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the show. It was so awesome catching up with you and hearing all your amazing mindset, like really the mindset and outlook on training and life. It's been amazing. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. And I'll send you that picture of that advertisement for Purebred Tokyo. Oh, for sure, dude. For sure. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Warrior's Edge podcast. For more great talks and interviews on all things martial arts, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train with us at our academy, Olympus Grappling Arts. Until the next one, keep listening and keep training.